If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4. This is a joy to be here and together around the Word of God again today with you. If you're a first-time guest with us, we're certainly delighted that God's providence has brought you here. And uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a copy of uh, the Bible in the seat in front of you. Unless you're in the balcony, then you have to come down here and get one. That's our gift to you. We could think of nothing greater to give you than God's Word. It's also a joy to come this morning, isn't it? And to be reminded that Christ is ruling and reigning on our behalf at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. It's a joy to be called, as John does here under the inspiration of the Spirit, to love one another as we ought to love one another. Ultimately, this is the weight of what's being written in all of chapter Four, loving the church is something that is important because love is of God. No one has love apart from Him. And everyone that loves truly is born of God. Everyone who loves knows God. That is the test that we considered. Last week, we considered both the objective and the subjective components of the faith, that there are those elements to the Christian faith that are objective, the truths that have been delivered once for all to the saints through the apostles and the prophets. And then there is the subjective application of those truths into all of our lives and into our practice. And so what we have to come to the conclusion of in all of those things is that our love one for another is dependent upon the objective reality of the Word of God. Anyone who would dare stand up and say theology, doctrine, does not matter is making a public declaration that loving anyone in this life has no meaning at all. And we don't think in those terms. We don't put a weight of emphasis upon the objective fact of the Word of God that has been delivered to us. But John puts that emphasis back into the Christian conversation. He draws us back to the reality that we ought to love one another, and we're not. And the only way that we can love one another is to know the true and triune living God. And the only way that we can know Him is through the words that He has given us. And so, John writes in verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Well, today we turn to the second half of, verses, of verse 16 and all of verse 17. And again, the importance of loving one another is stressed here. It's not optional. Loving God and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ must ultimately always be taken as chief and primary goals in our life. They must also never be divided. Well, I can love God, but I don't need to love the church. Or I can love God, and I'll love some of the church, but not all of the church. You know, Jesus responded differently when He asked about these weighty matters of the law. In Mark chapter 12, I remind you again, the question is, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And we must take those realities together. John shows us that here and in everywhere in the New Testament, that is a reality for the Christian life. That we must know God and we must love God and we must love our neighbor. What John is doing, I remind you, is teaching us about the great doctrine of assurance in this passage. And all of the other component constituent parts point back to that doctrine of 
assurance. There is ultimately no having assurance of our salvation if we live a life refusing to love the body. If we live a life on our opinions and our thoughts and our preferences, but we do not love the body, ultimately our assurance will be undermined. Remember, John is old at this point in his writing. John has walked in teaching and preaching doctrine for some time. John knows that the church has been comprised of people bought by the blood of Christ, purchased and renewed by the Spirit of God, and ultimately because of the will of the Father. The church to John in his old age, as he looked out and saw all of the political rancor, and he saw all of the civil unrest probably, and all of the different relational discord, he looked away and he beheld in his mind, no doubt, the years of being in the body of Christ. And in his heart, he must have marveled at this body of believers that God had called together. And he understood and knew from the Gospels that the gates of hell would rage against these precious people, against the church of the living God. But he also knew that, the, that hell would not prevail. He knew that at his time of death, that the church was going to be continuing in a world that lies in the power of the evil one. That these people that he loved so much were not in for an easy ride. That following Jesus didn't mean that you were going to have everything uh, on easy street. Just comfortable, cool, calm, the way that you want it. John understood the reality that there were going to be heresies hurled at the church. And there were going to be antichrists that would proliferate throughout the centuries and seek to undermine the assurance and the veracity of the faith. John understood that all hell was going to come against the church and she would be weak if not for her grounding in the assurance and the joy of the fellowship that she has with the true and triune God. And that is why John writes to us. The old man wanted to bring us comfort. He's not just unloading on us a bunch of legalism. He's seeking to encourage, remember the faith that you have. Be assured that you actually belong to Jesus because you see these realities playing themselves out in your life. This comfort wasn't just rooted in materialistic things, in worldly things. I, I love this quote by C.S. Lewis, our dear brother. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. The brother had read the book. So the question is, where is it that we will get our comfort from in this life? John answers in these verses that we'll read together, if you would stand, as we do honor the reading of God's Word. John writing about our love one for another, an evidence of our being in the faith and a grounds for the assurance that we should all take comfort in. Beloved, let us love one another, starting in verse 7. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And everyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, 
If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And here we are in our verses today. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is the love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before You trembling at the reality of the weight of these words, knowing that it is only through the blood of Christ that we ever have a hope of living a loving life. Father, we are so thankful that You have set Christ before us, that He has atoned for all of our sin. Father, we thank You that You did not leave us in our filthy, wretched state, but that You individually throughout the ages have by Your Spirit brought us to eternal life, trusting in Christ alone, by Your will alone. Would you write these verses on all of our hearts in Christ's name? Amen. You may be seated. Now there's a warning, I think, that must be given here. And that is that there really are two truths, and another one we'll get to next week, distilled in these verses that we have to deal with. And this, I think as I worked my way through this passage, is just one of those passages. I was told by an older brother in Christ uh, who, had preached, who has preached for years that when you come to the difficult, hard corners of Scripture, don't gloss over them. Let those hard corners drive into you and mold you into who Christ wants you to be. And I find that this particular passage is one that if we understand it rightly will cause all of us to fall down on our face. It should bring us all to tears. It should cause us all to realize that we are undone in our own efforts. It should cause us to see the reality that our love is trite and trivial. If this passage were understood rightly, Hallmark stock would fall into shambles. Because we would realize the worldly type of love that we often read into Scripture is not actually the kind of love that John is explaining to the saints once for all. I've studied through this passage in tears this week. Because I know that in so many ways... I fall short of the calling that I have in Christ. It's a profound and penetrating text if we allow it to be. So the first truth that we have to deal with in light of this warning is that Christians are those who abide in love. And we have to ask this question. So we do have the text often. What does that mean? This is something that John ultimately takes for granted in the life of a believer. To, to be one who abides in love, to, to live in love, is to be a Christian. If you are in fact a Christian, this in some sense subjectively is true about you. Christians are those who abide in love. This is the great difference between the life of the church and the life of the world. The difference between true Christians and, and false confessors and the rest of the world is not found in the version of the Bible that you read. It's not found in all of the things that are argued about inside the body of Christ. 
It's found in this distinctive reality that Christians are those who allow the love of God to be the controlling factor in their life. It's something that is always set before their gaze. And the reality is that those outside of Christ who are not abiding, listen friends, this love is not a love divorced from the Spirit. It's not something that we just say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's in a, a mysterious, ethereal way loving, and I want to follow Him sometimes. That's not what is being spoken of here. What this love is, is a kind of love that comes out of the believer because the believer is indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. Not only has the believer known objectively the realities of the faith and what God has given to him or to her, but he has known this reality subjectively and it subjectively comes out in their living. The world is not like this. The world isn't indwelt by the Spirit of God, so the world doesn't love like God. Chapter 3, in verses 11 and 12, John has already appealed to what the world is really like by pointing to the narrative that we read this morning as our Old Testament passage, that of Cain and Abel. He says in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was, e who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The world is typified by being hateful and cruel. This morning as I got up and began to move around and I have some habits of an old man, looking at the newspaper is one of them, and it really frustrates me, sorry this is a rabbit trail, I shouldn't even talk about this, but that continually newspapers are not wanting to put a print newspaper out, and that drives me nuts, like I want something to hold on to. Anyway, I was looking at the newspaper this morning, and there are these pictures that, uh, of as the Russians have retreated from different Ukrainian territory, and they're finding mass graves where people are just heaped into these deep openings in the earth, hands sticking out. These are image bearers of the living God. And what in the world is this war really about? It's about the idolatrous hearts of men. That's what it's about. And, and friends, the, 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 the reality of what John is pointing to and, and what, John, uh, what John is pointing to both in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is not that we all will commit, apart from Christ, the act of murder. The reality is that the hearts of men apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit and apart from Christ are hearts that are prone to lies and that will lead ultimately to murder. We are so prone to having attitudes of idolatry and to being disobedient and to being foolish and to being hateful and you go, yeah, but I would never fall in that vein. Have you ever been hateful to a fellow church member? Has a church member ever done anything to you that you've thought, oh, I wish I could? There's even vestiges in the redeemed heart of this reality. You should not be surprised that a world that lies in the power of the evil one, the evil one who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, continues to use the horde of his followers for demonic ends. You know, one of the realities in our day is that in some charismatic circles, and I think quite frankly, it seeped into a lot of our particular Baptist brand, we have this idea that, that Satan is ultimately wielding these poor, precious human beings who would never do anything wrong for his end purpose. But if we step back from the reality, you, you've heard this like colloquial thing in, in, in um, contemporary charismatic circles, well, the devil made me do it. You know, the demons made me do that. If we step back from the text a little bit, we will see that Adam and Eve were created in righteousness and holiness with a bent and an inclination in that direction. And Satan tempted them. And at the point of their tempting, when Adam sinned, 
all of the human race was plunged into abject rebellion and sin against the authority of God such that at a heart level, I believe there's not a whole lot different between a human being and a demon. They all seek to follow Satan's will apart from the redeeming work of God. You don't have to have some mysterious uh, uh, working. Now, I, 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 there is a whole conversation about the cosmic uh, workings and, and, and Satan's you know, power in this world, and it certainly is strong. But you know what the greatest concern that I have in the life of so many people I know without Christ? It is that they will destroy themselves, not because of Satan, but because their own heart draws them in that direction. We find in the Bible these passages. This isn't the point of the text, so I'll get back. But the, we find in the, in the, the passages all throughout uh, Scripture the, the hardening of men's hearts. Well, the question is, how are men's hearts hardened? And the answer to that question is they're just given more freedom. And, and naturally, we will self-destruct. We are our own worst enemy. We are tempted out of our own heart. That's what... Really, Paul is t- telling Titus in Titus chapter 3 about uh, how the reality of the, the, the world to come and the world that is. Remember them to be, or excuse me, remind them, he says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to get to have for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And why did Paul have to write these words? Because by nature, apart from that regenerating work of the Spirit of Almighty God, we are all murderers. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, things changed. Christians are different. And increasingly we grieve over the reality of how our hearts are prone to sin against others around us. And we grow in our love one for another in the body in particular, but then also in benevolence to the world around us. Christians are characterized by love. I, I think I've shared with this with you before, but as a 16-year-old boy, I grew up in the fantastic state of Missouri. All kinds of culture in that place. And I was really largely in, in, impacted by my grandparents and great-grandparents, and my great-grandparents listened to a guy that some of you will know, many of the younger people in this room my age even, will go, who? Uh, Jerry Clower from Mississippi. Um, and he always had this phrase. He talked about he and his wife having a home where Christian love is. And I can remember struggling with what does that context really mean? It means what John is writing about here in this passage. The Christians are those who are characterized by abiding in love. And so a working definition of abiding in love is that we love God and we love others. When we look at the great commandment and we compare it with this text, it has to mean that abiding in love is that we aim to love God by knowing Him and surrendering to His will and living our lives before Him. And we also love by, uh, abide in love by showing that love one to another. John drills this down for us in one phrase at the very end of verse uh, 17. So we have heard... In verse 16, that God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. And then uh, we're given a distilled understanding of what that means in this phrase at the end of verse 17. As He is, so also are we in this world. What this passage teaches us is that Christians are those who are as He is. 
He is love, and so they abide in love. Now there is this argument that I think is nonsensical over what is, who is being spoken of in, in the, the word he in this passage, as he is. And theologians go in different directions. Well, he is the Son, or he is the Spirit. That is who is being talked about here. I think where I land on that particular issue in this text is this. Does it really matter? Because what we're talking about is an essence, a nature, a characteristic. And the reality is that those who have seen the Father, or have seen the Son, have seen the Father. And that both, all three uh, in the Godhead, are the same in their divine nature. And so the answer to the question is this yes. It's speaking about God in all of His glory. And as He is in the eternal world, so should we be. So ought. I'm going to tell you right now, if the word ought were not just a few verses earlier than these, I wouldn't be up here this morning. Because the weight of this reality is that, Sarah, you and I ought to love one another in the same way that God is demonstrating love from the heavens. What a fantastic thing to think about. We are the same in this world as He is in the heavens. Now do you see why I said we should all kind of duck? That I felt like there should be a warning. As He is in His nature, in eternity, in heaven, in glory, so we should be in this world. So what does this mean practically? Well, if you remember Jesus speaking, he gives us the practical reality in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you <coughs> so that you may be sons and daughters, excuse me, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The question is, what is God's eternal attitude towards men? Now, the modern church would just say, blanketly, well, He loves everybody. And there is truth in that. It's truthy. But we should be very careful when we are talking about the love of God towards a world that is in the hands of the evil one. You see, there's really three ways that historically theologians have been able to break down the love of God in a way that we would helpfully understand how God interacts with the world. And, and, and that are, the, the categories are these. One, His love of benevolence. And that is that God has a kind disposition, a, a benevolent attitude to all of humanity. God is a benevolent God and His love is expressed benevolently to all of creation. He is kind and He is love in all that He is and all that He does. And that leads to His beneficent love. That is, His benevolence takes, a, uh, takes on action towards His creation and towards all of the world. And that is what we, are, we find here in Matthew chapter 5. That God sends the rain on both the just and the unjust. God shows His loving kindness, His benevolent disposition by allowing crops to grow. But that's not the end of the story of God's love, is it? I mean, is the full sum of the redemptive work of God that we get corn at the end of the year? Is that it? Now the answer is an emphatic no. And so we have to consider God's love of complacency, uh, which I think better in our modern vernacular would be described as the special love that God has for His bride, the church. For the sons and daughters that He has redeemed through Christ. There is a special love that God the Father has, and that love is for the Son and all who are in Him. It's why it matters so much what I spoke of last week that we can't go around Jesus to get to the Father because God the Father's love is set upon His Son and, and, and the only hope that we have to be loved as the Son is loved is if we come through Him. So all of the mystical religion of our day that seeks to get to Christ by moralism, by fanaticalism, by, by, by 
all kinds of of nonsense apart from Christ, ultimately the picture you need in your mind is that if you seek to come to Christ or come to God the Father apart from Christ, it is as if God has set His love upon His Son and all of a sudden some idiot walks in the room expecting Him to turn His gaze. Will not work. It must come through Jesus by the work. And here's the reality. We don't come to Jesus outside of the work of the Spirit. Does not happen. The reality is that to the world, apart from the special love of God, that God's wrath abides on those who are not repenting of their sins. You see, God doesn't... How many of you have heard God loves us all unconditionally? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. That is the biggest lie ever perpetrated on the church. Because I promise you this, there is one absolute objective condition for you being in the special love of God, and that is you turning by the power of the Spirit from your sins to the living God through Christ. There is a condition. The conditions all the way through Scripture. Your sin had to be dealt with. God sent His Son into the world to deal with your sin. To live a life perfectly in your place. And to die and to pay the penalty for your sin. God doesn't love specially, eternally, unconditionally. He loves through His Son. By His Spirit. So if you're here this morning and you've never come to God through Christ, my encouragement is repent and believe. Turn from everything you've ever thought Christianity was and turn to Christ. Ultimately, this means our attitude towards other people in our working out practically love this morning is not determined or controlled by who they are. God, love is not determined by us. Can we all say amen to that this morning? That God's love for His church is not determined by the reality that we are lovable people. And isn't this the core of the Gospel? That that we are not individuals who were lovely, who were acting kindly, who were... Caring for our neighbor? No, the the core of the Gospel is what Titus has already uh, said to us this morning. And that is, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And it was only when the goodness of the loving kindness of God uh, appeared into our lives that we changed into something different. This is the meaning of the cross. That Jesus came into a world and came to His own people. Individuals who think humanity is really pretty good need to take a hard look at Scripture. When Jesus comes down from the throne of heaven, He condescends to man and He comes to save His people. What do they do to Him? They murder. Because that's who they are apart from Him. We're not lovable people. Jesus was not taken aback or or wasn't surprised by any of this. He understood the character of those that He came to save. He understood that they were not lovely people. And yet, because His Father had set His love upon them from the foundation of the world, He came for their ransom. God's love is not controlled by us, by what we think or what we say or our attitude. God's love is constrained by His omnipotent will. And we should be thankful for that this morning. It means that we are to look at others and forget ourselves. That that is the reality of the Gospel. Loving doesn't become conditioned upon the person we're trying to love. And I think there is this important reality that we need need to be reminded of as we're dealing with this passage, and that is that saved and unsaved, every human being bears the image of God. Every individual who is born into this creation 
even in Adam, bears the image of God. And so when, when John calls us to love one another and to love in a benevolent fashion all who are in the world, we don't look at people in their, in their sins and love them with any of that as a regard. We look at them and we remember God breathed life into this person. His image is in them. And no matter how far they go in their own self-destruction, that particular image of God still remains in them and it deserves my love and my affection. So we have to forget about ourselves when we come to love people. Our people, can we just say this this morning? People, I, I had a friend, I won't say it exactly how he said it, but he, he said, people are awful, Jane. People are really difficult. It's hard to love people. Like, if you watch Hallmark, maybe those people aren't hard to love. You know. Because they're scripted. But real people in their trespasses and sins are really difficult to love. And to, to do the work of love practically, we have to forget ourselves. And we have to remember the objective truths of the faith and love not out of the seat of what we want, but out of the reality that we want to bring glory to God. It means that we have to see people not as their problems, but we have to see people as souls. We, ha we have to see people who are sold under sin. We have to be uh, aware of their lost state. One of the things that is alive and well in the church, and in my own heart in a certain degree, um, is this kind of contempt for people who are outside the body of Christ. Like, well, they're sinners. So were you. But the loving kindness of God appeared. And that loving kindness can appear in anyone's life in any moment. And so the way that we respond to sinners is not to scoff at them, but to, to proclaim the gospel to them in the love that we have for them. And to constantly pray that they would turn in repentance and faith by the power of the Spirit of God. We should have compassion upon them in their particular state. Uh, holding to the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that we look at humanity and say, well, that's a lost cause. It means we look at humanity and say, apart from the work of the Spirit, that's a lost cause. But the Spirit is alive and well. And we've been told in 2 Peter that if we're still sucking air this side of glory, it is because God is still redeeming His people for His glory. Talk about fuel for loving people. If we love people in this life simply because of what they will bring to us, we will fall down on our face. But if we love in light of glory, in light of the reality that God is doing His work and He may use us as an instrument in that work, it lightens the load in seeking to love people who are difficult. And when we do this, when we love one another inside the body of Christ, I had the joy of talking to someone this week and being able, both of us mutually, to confront some sin in our respective lives. And at the end of that conversation, there is something that happened that I can't get over and I hope I never will. And it's this, I forgive you. And to be able to say to one another inside the body of Christ, all of these things are under the blood now and they will be mentioned no more. We're not just taking down notes of how we've offended one another and, and I will love you when you behave the way that I want you to behave. No, rather we are to move in the direction of people because we see that they bear the image of God and then we are, we are to love them in forgiving them when they turn from their sins and offer that forgiveness. Now, must never think also of love, and I think this is the greatest problem with love in the Christian context, is we think of the love of God as something entirely passive. Just like something that God feels towards us. That God looks down and He goes, boy, I love those people. Look at them. They're murdering each other by the dozen. I mean, abortion is just through the roof. They slaughter their own children. And passively, I'm just going to dole my love out on all of them. 
That's not the love of God. And I can tell you that under the authority of the Word of God because here in this chapter we are told that God sent His only Son into the world. God's love is active. God deals with sin. He takes His steps out of glory into creation to confront sin and to push back at sin and to redeem a people for His own glory. God the Father and God the Son spoke together in the eternal council. I spoke of this last week about men and women in their lost state and condition and in their need for salvation. And the Father laid the problem before the Son and, and in a sense said, are you ready to do this? Are you ready to lay your life down for the sake of redeeming these that I have eternally loved? Are you ready to deal with their sin? You will have to leave the glories of heaven and all the emblems of your majesty and you will have to live among them. Are you willing to do that? And Jesus didn't say, well, I, I'll just sit up here and feel love towards them. That's not how this works. In fact, what we are told in Philippians chapter 2 is that, that Jesus, at the thought of this reality, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He took on the form of a servant. He said, I will love these people not only in a disposition, not only in benevolence, not only in beneficence, but in a special way that I will lay my life down for them. And I will deal with their sin. He didn't prize all the glory. I mean, here's the reality. Friends, the reason why we don't glory in the Gospel enough is that we've never beheld with our eyes the beatific vision of all the glories that Christ knew prior to the foundation of the world. But as he looked around heaven and he saw all of the glory that was due his name, because he was, he was pre-existent and eternal, and, and there were angels ministering to him and crying out, holy, 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 before his throne always. And then he looks at us in time, in all of our trash, in all of our filth, in all of our garbage, in all of our slander and murmurings and, and, and murderous actions. And he says, yes, Father, I love them. Doesn't that bring you to a point? Glory in that gospel, beloved. He didn't think, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but for the glory of God, he laid down his own life to love us well. And you know what Paul says in Philippians? Let that mind be in you. The way John says it here is this as he is. So we are in the world. What do we do, church, when we are maligned, when we are misunderstood, when we're misrepresented? Do we think of our rights? Do we assert our position? Do we point the finger and say, I should have been treated differently? Not if we have this mind in, among ourselves. We should love one another and humble ourselves. In that same passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. Six immediately after, he, he reminds Jesus reminds of the benevi, be, beneficent love of God uh, in sending the Son on the just and on the unjust. He says this: For if you love those who loved you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If Christian love is just kind of a benevolent charity to all in a way that we smile and wave, but in our hearts we really hate people who don't act the way we want them to act and they don't do the things we want them to do, we've missed the entire point of the Gospel. Because we're called to love in a benevolent way to every person regardless if they are our friend or our enemies. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says it that way. John says it as He is. So are we in this world. Now let's emphasize the second principle quickly. 
First, we were talking about abiding in love. Now, I want to change the emphasis not to the in love, but to the abiding portion of what is spoken of here in verse 16. And what does this word abide mean? Well, first, it means that this is a settled position in our life. It's not temporary. It's not transient. It's not fleeting. It's a settled position. Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2, you'll remember these. Speak and use these kinds of abiding terms. He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Abiding means remaining. uh, Being in this state continually. The man who is a Christian who abides in love treats love as though it were his home. It's just the natural setting. It's the place. It's it's what surrounds us. And, and, And it's not something that changes constantly. And I think first and primarily what we have to see that as being in our life is that we abide in love by looking to Jesus. We abide in love in a dark and fallen world knowing that that all hell is breaking loose around us but that we are of God. That, That there has never been a point in our existence as Christians after our salvation that we can't run to God and find Him to be loving and gentle and kind to us. And, and we abide. We know we need that kind of love. We're not abiding in our own religious goodness. We're not abiding in our own ability to please God. We're not abiding in our own righteousness. Our only hope for glory is that we're abiding in the love of Christ. And when we live in that kind of life, when we live in the objective reality that God has loved us from the foundation of the world, and we abide in Christ, then beloved, what will become the norm in our lives is that people will look at us and they'll say, those people really do love me. They do really show benevolence. They really do show charity. As He is, so are we in this world. Aren't you thankful? I think one of the things that we have to see here is that abiding gives the sense of never changing. And part of the reality of what we have to get in that is that the love that we abide in, that we need before we can love anyone else, is a love that does not change. And James tells us this in chapter 1, verse 17 of his letter. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Friends, aren't you thankful that the love of God, His his kindness towards you as a Christian has not changed? I mean, not from the foundation of the world has it ever... There's never even been a hiccup in the love that He has for you. What if there was this change in love towards us as Christians? That dependent on our actions and attitudes, that would ultimately depend on how God showed His kindness. Well, if we marry that back with Matthew chapter 5 and the benevolent love of God, and the reality that God sends the Son on the just and the unjust, friends, our actions would blot out the Son. If God conditioned His love for humanity on the changing dictates of human performance, there would be no sun in the sky. There would be no crops next year. There would be a catastrophic failure of the earth. God doesn't show His benevolence to all of creation in general because of creation. He does it because it's His character. And He doesn't continue to show His steadfast and abiding love to His church because of who we are. He does it because He has given us His Spirit and He is making us new by His work alone. Now that's a comfortable place to pillow your head in love from. And here is is why so many in the church are stiff-lipped and quite frankly jerks to one another. 
Because they're not actually abiding in love, they're abiding in their own ability, their own opinions, their own political ideologies, all of those things. They're not abiding in the love of God. When we abide in the love of God, the church begins to display a testimony to the world that is altogether unparalleled. Because we're not dependent on anything here. We're dependent upon the One who is in the heavens. And so we are in this world as He is. So let's apply this. How do we, how do we live in this practically? I want to land this quickly. One, we have to be careful about what we consider about who God is. We have to first and primarily be careful about what we consume as true theology of who the living Christ actually is. Because the God that we conceive of is how we will love people around us. Christian homes that are, that are beset with decisional, performance-driven legalism will be homes where Christian charity and love does not manifest itself. And so it is in the church as well. It matters, does it not, what we eat? I had the distinct joy of going to the rodeo this week with my wife. And my wife is one of those people that she jogs all the time and she makes sure she doesn't eat too much until you take her to the rodeo. And then she makes a beeline to the fondue fountain where they have chocolate-covered cheesecake and strawberries. And I actually realized something last night as I was concluding this. Amy and Sarah went to, uh, and Sean, we all went uh, to the the rodeo. And again, the first place we went was to get chocolate-covered strawberries with Sarah. And then I went to eat, and then here go Amy and Sarah back to the fondue fountain to get chocolate-covered cheesecake together. And Sean and I start a conversation, and what I didn't realize until last night is Amy and Sarah came back later with more chocolate-covered strawberries. Like, there was no end to this. And then the last strawberry fell on the ground. Now, as a father of five children, let me tell you something. The five-second rule has kept me from bankruptcy. But... There are exceptions to the five-second rule. And the rodeo is only second to the sale barn in my book. If it falls on the ground amongst a bunch of cattle, I'm not eating it. I won't tell you which one of the girls. All I'll tell you is that it matters what you take into your body, people. And so it matters what you take into your soul. It matters how you understand how you became a Christian. It matters that there are men this morning preaching a gospel that if you would just straighten up and fly right for a little while and prove yourself and pray the perfect prayer and do something transactional and don't forget to give on your way out and then behave yourself, God will be your Savior. Because then out of the life of that individual will come a kind of love that is conditioned upon the person Uh, the person who they are trying to love's actions. But when we know that we are loved and held together in Christ, not because of our works, not because of our profession, not because of who we are, but only because of the loving kindness of God, our Savior, then we are freed to love everyone around us. We're no longer in bondage to all of this garbage that has been perpetrated upon us. So what's the first thing that we have to do if we're going to love well? We have to think about objective truth well. We have to know and believe the right things. We have to consider the reality that God is already dwelling within us. We also have to Meditate upon who Christ is and all that He accomplished. Oh, we have to meditate upon the reality that for a wretched sinner like Jay Clatworthy, the Son of God was sent into the world. Think about all that you are and all that you've done apart from Christ. And none of that stopped Him from loving you. We are murderous people. 
We are individuals who slander the name of God. We are individuals who in most churches today will receive the gospel and claim to be Christians all the while slandering the doctrines that have been delivered to the church throughout the centuries. That's the kind of people we are. And yet God has chosen to love us. And so as we meditate on His goodness, think about the reality of what, of, of what God said to, to Cain after he murdered his younger brother. He was given the charge to love and to care for his younger brother. And what is the question that is asked? What have you done? And then God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. There's a a song that we will probably sing at Easter about Jerusalem. And the lyrics say this in part. See Him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing. Dust that formed the watching crowds take the blood of Jesus. Abel's blood was spilled on the ground and those murderous actions and His blood cried out for justice. The blood of Jesus fell into the dirt from which we are formed. And what does Hebrews tell us? Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and, the, and to sprinkle the, the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have to meditate on the goodness of the, the, the realities of who Christ is. It's only when we abide in the realities of Christ that we will love others well. Isn't it odd that we live in a world today where people are constantly saying we need to love each other more, we need to love each other more, and in the next breath they will say and we need to get rid of Jesus from everything. That's a declaration of hate. That's a declaration of war against the Holy Triune God. And it's not an expression of love at all. If you try to... Here's here's a crazy reality in our lives. Not only can you not love God apart from coming through Jesus, you also can't love people around you without coming through Jesus. Without a a deep abiding commitment to Christ and, 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 and abiding through the Spirit, resting in the Son, there will be no love that flows from your life. The other thing that we have to do, so we have to think... Clearly, we have to meditate upon Christ. And we also have to do the difficult work of facing the situations in our lives. As I have preached this message this morning, talking about abiding in the love of God and loving everyone around us in a way that brings honor and glory to to Him, I know that there are those individuals that the Spirit has brought to your mind. And I know that because as I wrote this, God forced my face in the dirt over the way that I've loved some people. And what you have to do is face that reality. Don't explain it away. Well, I would love them, but... Don't try to, 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 to obscure the reality that when you think about people that are difficult to love, that is the convicting work of the Spirit of God leading you in the direction of the one that He wants you to love. Those are the individuals that you have to interact with in accordance with the gospel. And and friends, I know in a room this large, there are those of you that have struggled to love somebody, maybe because they've done something horrendous to you. That the way that you love that individual may be, if God permits, that you confront them with the gospel. And explain to them that apart from the saving blood of Christ, the actions are ultimately against a holy God and they will be held accountable. And you hold the Gospel out in a way that you love them and you beg them to come in repentance and faith, not to you, but to the living God. Maybe this is the greatest truth out of this passage, and we'll be done this morning. Knowing that we, to love well, need to We need to think well about the Lord. We need to meditate on all that He is and all that He has done. And we need to face the reality of the world around us as it is. Difficult and dark. And that's one of the freeing things about 1 John in my own life. Friends, it's the reality that John doesn't say, now love these pretty good people. He says, we are of God. They're all damned and in the power of the evil one. And if... Sorry. If 
you seek to love them, it's going to be difficult. It's going to hurt. There's going to be consequences to it. Don't love because the world is a lovely place. Love because my glory is ever before you. And that is what he is saying here of the consequence. I think some of us, even in the body, think that there's really no consequence for us if we don't live a loving life. But in verse 17, a consequence is given distinctly. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. What John is saying is that if this reality of the gospel doesn't influence, if you don't think about it, if you don't meditate on it, if it doesn't ultimately come out in the way that you interact with those around you, remember there's a day coming when you'll have to give an account for your life. You will have to face the one who sent his son into the world. What are you going to do on that day? Are you going to rest in Christ throughout your life? Are you going to abide in Him in such a way that He can free you from all the constraints of selfishness and sin that you might bring glory to God this side of heaven? The day's coming, friends. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before Your throne this morning acknowledging that we're not loving people. That so often we respond arrogantly, pridefully, foolishly, fearfully, not lovingly. Would you convict us of our sin? Draw us closer to Christ. Help us to know Him through the power of Your Spirit and Your Word. Help us to meditate on the goodness of Christ all throughout our days that we might display Christ.